0: Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience.
1: Michael Reynolds, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I think you're going to be like episode 235, something like that, which is kind of kooky for me to think about. One of my earlier guests uh, connected me to you, Andrew Ting, who I, I think I was thinking about this earlier today. He may be one of the five nicest people I've ever met.
0: He is unbelievable. If you, if you haven't had a chance to to listen to his his uh, version of this podcast, it's, he's unbelievable. He's a great man. He's got the perfect blend of uh, humility, but yet intelligence and um, and directness and guidance. He's just he's an all around great guy.
1: Yeah, and uh, diversity of interests is like no other person I've ever been around. Like he just he, he has a lot of really fun interests in there. They're pretty different from each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. He's one of the best guys I've met, for sure.
1: Yeah, so uh, when we connected before today, you and I have Belize in common. And, and when I say Belize in common, I've been there five or six times. You have a business that w- we'll talk about in a, in a bit. Um, I had a very different view of Belize as a tourist, a guy that went there no more than 10 days at a time. And, and you've spent a good chunk of the year, even now, there. Um, and you said, yeah, it's... When you're not a tourist it's a very different place
0: absolutely yeah i'm curious to hear your insights into what it's like being a tourist versus being a resident slash business owner it's quite different yeah i i, I can't wait to talk about it actually but let's start at the beginning uh sure. where'd you grow up i grew up oddly enough in sioux falls south dakota uh which was you know a, pr- a pretty idyllic place to grow up i'm very it's the stock phrases i'm glad to be from there um, but, you know, it's, it's typical Mayberry RFD. Back in those days, it was about 50,000 people. And um, you ride your bikes everywhere. It was stand and deliver with your friends walking down the train tracks. And it was it was wonderful. Um, it was wonderful. I was anxious to get out of there by the time I was you know, reaching my adulthood, but um, always appreciative of the opportunities I had to, to live there. So you, you went to school,
1: you, you did what your parents told you. And then in your free time, you kind of just did whatever you, you wanted to
0: Exactly. Yeah, I was I was lucky. I got I got um, I got heavily involved in drama and music, actually, in middle school. It's kind of a fun story. I had no interest in I got interested in music early. So I was doing that. Um, but I had no interest in drama and took a class in middle school and um uh, one of one of the directors there said, you know, you want to audition for the annual school musical in middle school. And I thought, OK. And I did. And I got the lead. So um, the first part I ever got was the lead. And the funny part for me was I was kind of a nerd. I was kind of an intellectual nerdish guy and not very popular with with uh, with women from, from my choices. And I can still to this day remember after the first performance of the school musical standing back in the dressing room, which was a classroom. And all of a sudden, all these women started coming in and talking to me. I and mean, it just and I could literally, it's like a light bulb. It was almost like the heavens open. I could hear that, uh, that sound. Oh. It's like, I have found my calling on how to, how to be popular. So it was really almost like a, a switch. Um, it was it was really great. And it was a big part of my life for a long time. In fact, I, I we can talk about this if you want. I wound up studying drama in college for a while.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely want to uh, talk about that. I also want to connect with you on this topic. My, uh, my mom, uh, I'm a mama's boy. Uh, she had a pretty big influence on me as a kid. And I, I was a jock. Uh, wasn't necessarily super popular, but I was a jock. And she wanted me to have diverse experiences. And so she told me to go try out for The Sound of Music. I ended up being uh, Friedrich, which is the oldest boy. Uh, and and I, I think the second oldest kid out of the seven. Uh, but I was the, actually the, the sixth oldest out of the seven in, in reality. Uh, but women seemed to, to gravitate to me after i had that role and then my my career ended with the next play i went out for oliver twist and i i became orphan uh, number 22.
0: oh did, funny you, you had your 15 minutes of fame and that was it
1: huh yeah that, then i was done yeah no that's cool I, I definitely want to explore that some more so how was your family out in south dakota for generations or or did
0: no, actually, um, we were the first generation to move there. My family grew up, you know, that my mother was a, a second generation Italian. My father had been in the United States, you know, Mayflower type of family, but they wound up settling in Nebraska. So there were um, dirt farmers in in middle Nebraska and wound up settling in Omaha, ultimately, which is where I was born, in fact. Um, and then my father got, he worked for Northwestern Bell Telephone Company back when there were the mob bell organizations and got promoted and moved to Sioux Falls. So that's how we wound up there.
1: Yeah. Well, you and I have a lot of fun connections. My mother-in-law is a second generation Italian um, in this country, but she was uh, in Jersey. For,
0: no for- kidding. Yeah. Where? What part of uh,
1: Italy? Uh, Sicily. Uh, and I cannot remember the t- name of the town for the life of me.
0: Um, okay. Well, we'll have to connect on that because my grandmother is from Sicily. My grandfather is from Naples. And in fact, I just two years ago went to Sicily uh, out of coincidence and did some family research, which was a lot of fun. I hired an interpreter and went to all the local record banks and, and searched oh, wow. for records for my family. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. That's
1: really cool. Uh, I think she, would, uh, she has a brother who's into genealogy, and I think she
0: knows probably more than the average person, but there's probably a lot more she could learn interesting it's it's fascinating to look back and unfortunately for me I was much closer to my father both my parents have passed away I was much closer to my father and so I was very interested in the Irish heritage um, and not that interested in the Italian heritage just because I wasn't close to my mother and after she passed um, I started meeting people from her family distant relatives I'd never met and became fascinated with her side of the family so regrettably I never got the chance to you know, really. Uh, pick her brain about you know family heritage. So I picked up everything kind of on my own, but it's, it's been a fun journey because I picked up everything about her father and everything about her mother from other relatives. It's been great.
1: Yeah. And they uh, the, the first generation that came to the U.S., uh, I can't understand what they went through uh, to get here because they, they were not treated
0: well, is my understanding. Well, and in fact, my grandfather um, was sent over at age 13 with a little little pack and look a few, few dollars and said, good luck. And by the way, take the neighbor boy. He's eight. Uh, he needs to find a life too. So he basically took the neighbor boy, no relatives. He was the first one here and, um, kind of a, I mean, branching off a little bit. One of the great denouements in my life when I talked about not knowing much about my Italian side of the family was uh, I knew that story all my life because the little eight year old boy became my, you know, very dear uncle. Um, And was always at every family gathering, he considered my grandfather, even though they're only five years apart, his father. Um, But I went to a a family reunion not that long ago, 10 years ago, probably uh, here in Illinois, oddly enough. And when I walked into the family reunion, I didn't really know any of these people, just talked to them a little bit on the phone. And the music stopped, and they said, "Our guest of honor is here." When I walked in, and I was very, yeah, I was very. What do you, what do you mean, the guest of honor? I'm just a, a schmo. Turns out, unbeknownst to me, my grandfather had paved the way for all these people in this room ultimately to come to the United States, because he was the first one that came over, and he, they call him the Three Brothers, and um, he paved the way for his other two brothers to come to the United States, found them jobs, found them on the railroad, of course. And um, helped support them to get their, get their feet on the ground, get them across the passage, and they all revered him and they said whenever, uh, they called him Charlie, his name was Carmine, but whenever Charlie would come back from, from Nebraska, where he wound up settling, um, to Illinois, which was kind of where everybody else settled they've rolled out the red carpet. Everything stopped and all the, all the mothers um, cooked everything in the world and then the bands fired up and it was just a wonderful thing. So it was very touching actually. I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah. That's uh
1: that's great his family history to that. I'm, I'm glad you learned that about your family. That's uh Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I'm sorry to do this to you again. Just another quick connection. I've been to Italian family reunions every five years for a long time now. And, uh, we take a, a picture of the whole group i am not italian I am, i'm i'm six three i'm six inches taller than the next tallest person in the picture
0: <laughs> that's funny i love it
1: yeah, Every, i mean it's, it's it's wonderful to stack the five or six pictures up and just like who's the, that guy doesn't belong i don't think he's supposed to be there
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's you know, the italian culture is fascinating i mean it's um Kind of a private, humble community, at least in my family, very private, very humble. And, you know, things I learned, like, for example, when I decided to go to Sicily, I did some um, I started this family research and found that my grandmother, unbeknownst to me, who passed away before I was born. So I didn't know her. But unbeknownst to me, um, had 13 siblings that never came up in conversation. My understanding all my life was that she was an only child and had no family. And she had 13 siblings who I, I, all of whom I tracked down, you know, many are deceased, but I tracked down all their families. And, um, that was incredible. Just incredible.
1: So your mom had, uh, 13 aunts and uncles.
0: Mm -hmm, That's right. That were never discussed, never met them, never talked about them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, they could have been in your life. I mean, I'm sure plenty of them were alive when you were a kid. Oh, I'm sure. And some of them actually were in the United States. I mean, some stayed in Italy, but some were in the United States. Craziest thing. Yeah. Um, Well, there was probably some some rift um, that happened. And, you know, everyone just stops talking to each other in that era. and That's probably what happened, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. And let's go back to your your grandfather uh, coming over here at the age of 13 and brings the neighbor kid at age eight. Could you I mean, people would freak out if their 22 year old did that.
0: I think. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it's A, it's probably a statement of the times and B, I'm guessing a statement of the desperation of, yeah. uh, of some of the folks back then, the inability to support their kids and knowing that there's no life there for them. It's, un- yeah, it's incredible to even think about. I wish I could go back in time and talk to him about those experiences.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine my eight year old kid leaving with the prospect of probably never seeing him or her again
0: exactly yeah and that was the case they never did see their parents again either one of them wow that's that's unbelievable we're what we, uh genera- our generation
1: i think you and i are roughly the same age our generation and certainly younger generations uh really can't appreciate how lucky we've had it absolutely yeah no doubt about it all right so you decide sioux falls and south dakota in general i, I think because you did you go to college out of state
0: I did. I went to Northwestern here in Chicago. That's that's how I
1: moved here. So this will be fun. Is Northwestern hard to get into generally? My
0: understanding is it is. Tremendously hard. Yes. Right.
1: Yeah. And as my my kids will remind me, like, yeah, Dad, you got into a certain school, but it was a lot easier back in the 80s. (laughs) Like, You're probably not wrong. There's certainly more people now vying for those spots. Yeah.
0: Uh, But is it
1: harder to get into out-of-state or Northwestern?
0: I suspect the fact that I was from South Dakota helped, to tell you the truth. Now, I had, gr- I had great grades. One, I mean, I have a lot of flaws in life, but one of the things I'm very good at is taking tests in school. And I was always, you know, always top of my class and top SAT and all that. Um, but I remember distinctly sitting in the freshman orientation with 650 other students and they um, the dean said, we have students from, you know, Nairobi to blah, 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 to blah, 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 and even Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> so I actually made, I thought, really, you have to point that out. I mean, um, it's but not it was, more. Well, I know, no, it's not. And in fact, one of the reasons I picked it is I had, uh, I was lucky enough to have a choice of a bunch of schools, but I thought that's far enough away from home, that I'm away, but close enough as far as ethic and all, it's still the Midwest and I could get home, you know, in a day. So uh, that's one of the reasons I picked it. But I was—it was interesting because um, nobody in South Dakota really leaves South Dakota. I mean, mm. almost all of my classmates—the uh, farthest they would branch out. I mean, really going out there in a limb would be University of Minnesota. That was like people going crazy. But most everybody else went, you know, maybe to some of the color schools in Iowa and maybe um, one or two in Nebraska um but almost everybody went to university of south dakota or south dakota state university and they just looked at me like i was some strange oddity and i remember even some of my my um teachers in high school just didn't believe me that i was doing this they thought i was making it up it's like you're not doing you're not going there it's like yeah i actually am no you're not um it was crazy so the the culture
1: is everybody stays what's that what do
0: you think that's born out of that's a great question um I I think, you know, this, this may sound insulting to my, my home state, but it's, it's a very um, cloistered, cloistered place. And I think there's just no encouragement to go out and explore the world. I mean, everything you need here. why do you have to go anywhere else? It's just, it's very much that type of attitude. And um, there's some people branch out and I think it's changed a lot. You know, Sioux Falls has grown from what 50,000, 40,000 hours there to. I think it's over two hundred fifty thousand now. Oh, wow! It's, yeah, it's gotten really big, partly because of the the tax incentives for businesses to go there and its proximity to so many different states. Um, but I think back in that era, it was it was discouraged to leave the state. That you know, what you're not good, your this isn't good enough for you. There should be good enough for you. It was kind of that that
1: thing. Yeah, and the irony is, generations before uh, your generation. Uh, Somebody came from very far away. A lot of people came from very far away to to uh, to make a life for themselves. Uh, some of it may have been, too, that, like, hey, you, you need to stick around to help the family with money, with financial matters.
0: Well, that's true. And now that you say that, you know, of course, it was largely an agricultural environment for most people. So, yes, you stuck around and helped dad, with dad and mom with the farm. You know, you were, you were help. So we weren't of that ilk. You know, my dad was a, a executive with the phone company. But... Um, I think for a lot of people, that kind of mentality stuck around.
1: Northwestern is known as a, uh, at least a, as a guy from Virginia, I think of Northwestern as like uh, an almost Ivy League, and it probably would be Ivy League if it was founded 100 years earlier kind of thing. Um, what, what's the what's the origin story for Northwestern?
0: Um, you mean my my story with Northwestern? No, I mean in general, and then you're... Oh. That's a great question. I don't even know exactly the origin story to tell you the truth. Um, I couldn't tell you. I know it's, it, it was it's fairly old. It was uh, um, started in the 1850s. I know that. but I really don't know how it wound up uh, being what it is. Isn't well, here, here,
1: here's a different question. What is Northwestern known for today or over the last I
0: don't know three or four decades? That's um, a good question as well. It's really heavy in the arts. Um, It's got, at one time it had the best drama school and the best music school in the United States. I'm sure it's arguably not that anymore, but it did um, have that reputation for some time. Um, Excellent in economics, excellent in political science, um, excellent in engineering. Uh, Those are probably the things that stands out.
1: And so what attracted you to Northwestern in part was uh, the pursuit of drama?
0: Yeah, that was almost 100%. It, my, my thought process was this, and it was interesting. I've had this conversation recently with people. Um, my wife is from Connecticut, so she had all sorts of um, uh, advantages as far as like having great school counselors and contacts. In South Dakota, our school counselor was just some guy that taught gym, and he had, a, he had an office where he had some books that you know sc- school pamphlets and if you'd ask him questions about anything other than the state schools he'd kind of shrug so I actually just stumbled upon Northwestern by looking through some of the brochures on his on his countertop and studied it and saw well this is interesting I don't know much about the school did some research and I was going to pursue drama but I was practical enough even at that age and I remember telling my parents this, I said look I'm gonna try the drama thing Knowing that it's a long shot and it may, be, you know, may not be something I want to pursue. But if I go to a place like Northwestern and I decide to flip out a drama, I've got this great liberal arts school behind me for other pursuits. Whereas if I go to some conservatory or something like that, I'm kind of stopping out to switch schools. Yeah. And they thought that was a pretty practical approach. And that is indeed exactly what happened. You know, After my second year, I decided, yeah, it's fun, but this is not the way I want to spend my life. What changed for you? it was almost an epiphanal type of thing and i think part of it as strange as this sounds is and i think this goes for a lot of people in drama god bless them all and i have so many friends still involved in drama is it is a methodology for getting your ego stroked it's almost you know it's it's almost self-confidence building and so it's and I think once I kinda you know, Northwestern was life changing for me because when I went there, I went there with a somewhat of a lack of confidence and I built so much confidence while I was there that I literally kind of woke up one day and said, This has been fun. I'm good at it. I've proven while while being at Northwestern that actually I probably could make some form of living doing this. You know, who knows at what level? But I was excelling as far as getting parts and getting directoral um uh, opportunities and like but I just said you know but I want to have a family and I want to have more balance in my life and the instability of knowing where the next paycheck might come from um, is not a lifestyle I want to live so I literally that day woke up walked over to the registrar's office and switched majors to poli sci much to the chagrin of my drama teacher when fall came around he knocked up, literally knocked on my door and had some um, very strong words for me about why why would I do something like this.
1: Yeah. It's not for everybody. Right. And, and yeah, not knowing where the next paycheck is coming from is scary to I think most of uh, humanity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know what the stats are, but I imagine for every Tom Cruise,
0: there are thousands of failed Tom Cruises. Well, and it's funny because Northwestern has just a barrage of very famous actors. I mean, I could sit here for the next half hour and rattle them off a friend, friends of mine actually or acquaintances and I have an equal number. Well, actually, no. I don't have an equal number. I have five times as many friends who are a hundred times more gifted than those people who never made it and are yeah. either either flipped out uh, and did something else twenty five years ago, or are still kind of just muddling along, getting a part here and there, but doing something else on the side. So it's not. It's almost never related to talent. It's related to um, luck, luck of the draw, uh, looks voice um something of that nature so that that methodology of being rewarded was just not appealing to me ultimately
1: yeah it feels like it's based on happenstance i'm sure
0: yeah it sure is yeah but then i mean some of the people uh, one of my stories about northwestern this was so intimidating i walked in and the first day i walked in to the theater department i went backstage and they were rehearsing a streetcar named desire and the guy playing stanley kowalski I, i didn't couldn't see him at first but I heard this just unbelievably mellifluous voice and just booming and just filled the entire auditorium. And it scared me because I thought, if this is my competition, I'm toast. And it turned out just coincidentally, the first actor I ever saw on stage in Northwestern was Clancy Brown, which may not be a name you recognize.
1: His brother played football at my alma mater.
0: Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, he's in, yeah. I
1: think he's, He was in my favorite movie.
0: Uh, which which one's that?
1: Uh, Shawshank Redemption.
0: It's a great movie. Yeah. I didn't know if you were gonna say Highlander, because I know that's kind of a cult. cult he
1: he was also movie. the
0: Highlander and I'm kind of
1: I'm kind of one of those cult members for, for that movie. But yeah. Yeah, yeah no, he's
0: a great actor. He's a great actor. And that voice was was unbelievable. And he's about, you know, six four. And so he's got quite a presence. And I thought I'm just I might as well pack my bags right now when I heard him <laughs> talk.
1: Was Cl- so Clancy's, I guess, a couple two or three years older than you? Yeah,
0: I think he was a senior at that time. I was a freshman. So yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, no, I, I'm very familiar with Clancy Brad because he's one of the, the main characters, uh, plays one of the main characters in my favorite movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. That, he was a nice, he was a very nice guy too. He was he was kind of, um, I wouldn't say he was a mentor of mine by any stretch, but he was a mentor to the freshman class. He um, you know, was was not arrogant at all. I mean, there was just certain people like him that you knew was, there was something special. There was two or three of them you just knew, oh yeah, this guy's going to be something else. And he was just very humble and very gracious.
1: Yeah, I, I've never met the man, but uh, I I do think highly of him because of that movie and some other things he's done. Uh, and I, I've always dreamed that he was a really nice guy.
0: And you're right. Yeah. And he still is. I still, you know, I'm a, still a Facebook friend of his and he does great things. And, you know, he's Mr. Crab on SpongeBob. Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. I know it took me a while. I didn't know that either. And then he was just posting something like, no, I mean, we, <laughs> I watched that with my kids. And sure enough, yeah. it makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. That's cool. All right, so you mentioned music earlier. Is that singing or
0: are you an instrumentalist as well? Uh, both. I was uh, an all-state, tr- all-st- all-state trumpet player and also um, was all-state, or, um, all-state choir and honors choir in South Dakota. And then I sang some in, in college and did a lot of musical theater. And then um, another little tidbit about me, which is kind of strange, is I got involved in barbershop quartet singing. As weird as that sounds. And the way that happened was, um, I had some buddies in high school. We were all in chorus, all in the the small groups, and we were looking for something to do at the talent show. And I happened to have some old barbershop music in the piano bench that was my grandmother's piano bench. I have no idea where it came from. And I just pulled it out and I said, Well, we could do this. We don't need anyone to accompany us. And so uh, we learned a couple barbershop songs and we had some fun. We got selected for the talent show. And and that was great. And um, then uh, somebody in the audience was involved in the Barbershop Society, which I didn't even know existed, honestly, came Mm -hmm. up to us after the show and said, you guys need to get involved in the Barbershop Society. And I said, what are you talking about? And and, um, great guy. He had a quartet. They coached us and told us all about the society. And at this time, I was a senior. And he said, you're going to Chicago. Chicago is the hotbed of Uh, barbershop music oddly enough and he turned out he was right it isn't any longer but at that time it was it I mean Illinois had its own district most of the other districts in the society were four five six seven eight nine ten other states but Illinois had so many people involved it had its own Mm -hmm. district and produced more international champions from Illinois in that kind of late 70s early 80s era than any other district so it was just incredible when I got here I got involved right away um, and found a quartet that was a college quartet. And we had an um, unbelievable time going around and singing around campus and competing in competitions. And then, um, the best job I've ever had, don't tell Andrew Tang this, but the best job I've ever had was singing in a strolling barbershop quartet at great America amusement park, just outside of Chicago.
1: And strolling is just that you, you stroll around the park singing.
0: What we literally did. And I don't know if this is, this is a uh, kosher for, uh, for blended audiences is we would look for the prettiest girl we could find and go (laughs) sing to her and try to get a phone number usually and then we find another one (laughs) it goes back to the women talking to you after your first lead exactly even i used to i used to joke even barbershoppers have groupies uh it was it was terrific job it was so much fun did you do uh barbershop uh throughout college and after college I did. You know, when I got when I went to law school, um, you know, I got pretty busy, so I didn't really do it then. And then when I first started practicing, I didn't do it then. But after I'd kind of gotten into the swing of things and um, uh, the kids were kind of a little bit more self-sufficient, I went back to what's called the Northbrook New Tradition Chorus, which actually won international. It was a very salty chorus. And I sang with that chorus for a number of years and had another number of quartets that did pretty well competition-wise. We never won international as a quartet, but we did compete at the international level. So that was fun.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. So in a typical quartet, you've got a bass, a tenor, an
0: alto, and... you got a tenor, a lead, a a baritone, and a bass. Uh, I
1: made up alto. Yeah. That that would be
0: in a... You're you're pretty right. If it's a mixed chorus, it's, you know, soprano, alto baritone bass. So you're right.
1: Okay. Right on. Yeah. I I can't sing. I Do you you know you have a good voice when you hear yourself? Because what you hear without assistance is different than what everybody else hears, right?
0: Yeah. I don't don't think I have a good voice. What I think I do have is a, I always called it an intelligent voice. I'm really good at being able to fit into a chord and know, you know, know if I'm flat, know if I'm sharp. I have some pretty good resonance, which helps especially in a barbershop because you know, the whole goal of barbershop singing is to create this, this um level of harmonics that you're kind of creating harmonic upon harmonic upon harmonic and you have to have some resonance to do that it's like if you ever take a keyboard a piano not a keyboard take a piano and you hold down um very gently a high c without making any noise and if you go down to a lower c and you slam on that lower c and make it resonate you'll hear that higher c because of the the concepts of of harmonics that's the same principle as barbershop harmony so um so, so I know I'm very intelligent. I was really good at being able to figure out the chords and know my place in it, and whether it be a little sharper, a little lower. But as far as like a soloist, I've never considered myself a good soloist. Uh, have people told you you're a good soloist? I've heard that, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I am. I mean, I continue to get like, you know, leads in musicals and, and the like um, for a lot of years, but I think that was a combination of being a decent actor and having an okay voice. So what does it take to be a decent actor? Um, what's it take to be a decent actor? I think I think self-awareness and being an observer, observer of the human condition, honestly. I, just yesterday, I played this great little video clip, I don't know if you've seen it, of uh, Ian McClellan talking to Ricky Gervais about acting.
1: I have not have you seen, seen it. I'm going to check it out.
0: you got to look it up, because you know Ricky Gervais is asking him about uh, acting, and he goes, well, what I do is I pretend to be <laughs> the person I'm supposed to be. For example, uh, when I, he does a much better job than I'm doing, you know, I was asked to, by Peter Jackson to play the part of wizard. Now I am not a wizard, uh, (laughs) but I thought about what it would be like to be a wizard. And I acted. (laughs) And I pretended to be the wizard. (laughs) So, I mean, there's some level to that where you, it's just, you just have that skill or you don't. Honestly,
1: I I wonder if that was uh, set up like, like, Ricky and whoever was behind the camera knew they were going to do that. Yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: Still hilarious. It was for sure. Yeah, it was great though. And (laughs) he'd say he'd say things like, "So here's how it works, Ian, 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 Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Ian, Wizard." And I do that for two or three hours, and it'd be Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. (laughs) That's hilarious. He uh, he didn't choose the uh, method acting approach. It sounds like. No, no. Just like um, I can't think of the actor's name on Succession, Brian Cox. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's very much of that ilk where he just goes, just act. just act. Yeah, I'm an actor. I act. And one of the other characters whose name escapes me, um, who plays a son, is very much into method acting. Like one of those guys you can't talk to one on one. He's in his part all the time and he kind of plays a jerk. Uh, and a very troubled kid and, and you can just tell brian cox has no patience for him when he's talking about him in interviews like just act the part don't be an idiot I mean, come on <laughs> so
1: brian cox uh doesn't believe daniel day lewis is going about it the right way it sounds like- no not at
0: all he doesn't yeah. get it
1: <laughs> all right so when you broke away from drama halfway through uh undergrad and you decided to major poli was the idea of law school
0: yeah yeah, that was always kind of in the back of my head that I, I don't want to call it a fallback because it was kind of something I was just as intrigued by as, as drama, but I really wanted to give the drama thing a shot. Um, so, yep, it was immediate flip into the whole law thing. And what were you going to do with a law degree at the school? Um, what I wound up doing, actually, which was I wanted to be a litigator and I, wanted to be, I didn't want to do criminal law and I didn't want to do personal injury law or medical malpractice. I wanted to do commercial litigation. So, um, yeah, ultimately... Wound up working for a large blue chip law firm doing business litigation.
1: Uh, So for the novice on that topic, tell me a little bit more about business litigation.
0: Sure. It's all civil, meaning there's no criminal component to it at all. It's typically um, a business suing another business. It could be trademark infringement. It could be breach of contract. It could be securities issues. um, It could be employment issues. um, It could be discrimination issues, things of that nature.
1: And so that sort of litigation, it's not niche because there are a lot of lawyers that do that, I imagine. Uh, That's right.
0: But how did it get your
1: attention? Or what, what, what was it about that that, that uh, was of interest to you?
0: Well, I think part of it was I felt like that was a way I could kind of bring my dramatic skills to the table, uh-huh. my ability to articulate on my point, uh, sell an audience, so to speak, a jury, a judge, whoever was someone I was advocating to. Um, I like the notion of thinking on my feet. And I liked, I really did, it was really distasteful to me to do, as I mentioned a moment ago, personal injury or medical malpractice or criminal law, which were the other elements of the ability to do litigation. I just had no desire to do any of that. It just, the criminal law is just, the. you know, it's one thing to deal with people's money and the fate of their money. It's a whole different thing to deal with the fate of their uh, personal freedom. And I just didn't want that pressure. So... Um, I thought it was a perfect blend. And then it was, you know, and frankly, a nice way to make a living. Um, there are better ways to make a living, but it was a nice way to make a living.
1: No, I mean, that's a brilliant answer. And it sounds like it's a very comprehensive and concise answer. So I appreciate
0: it, that. It is. But having said that, I mean, what, you know, if there's any budding lawyers out there that's, that are listening, you know, we, we take our concept of what it is to be a lawyer from TV and what our what our minds make up and as you probably know, 99.9% of what you do as a commercial litigator, particularly is all paperwork yeah. and the times you get into court are few and far between, and they're very rewarding when you do, but that's not what you're doing day in and day out as a commercial litigator. As a prosecutor, a little different story, you're doing a lot of motion practice a lot of arraignments and things of that nature. But as a business litigator, you're not in court that often.
1: Yeah. Um, my, my dad's a lawyer and I, I saw what he was going and he, he was a small town attorney. He was doing everything from A to Z for whoever in town needed his services. I'm like, that doesn't appeal to me at all,
0: but good for uh, you. Good for your dad that he didn't try to encourage you to go into that profession. I always say one of my greatest successes in life is that neither of my kids is an attorney.
1: <laughs> yeah. You, you, and my dad, I imagine have heard a million lawyer jokes.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, so you did that for a while and, and
0: Are you still doing that in in part? I call myself a recovering attorney. Um, So I did that, I did uh, the traditional practice for about 15 years and then um, actually started, I went in house with one of my clients who had kind of wooed me out of the practice and um, was so grateful to do that. It was just, it's been such a better environment for me. Um, It's just, here's one of the things about commercial litigation that's tough is you are, I might've told you this when we talked the first time, you're always in a state of battle. And even though you're not in court, you're always in a state of battle because you're battling, obviously, the other side, opposing counsel. And they're always telling you how stupid you are and how wrong you are and how you don't know how to interpret the law. And you're taking that every day, day in and day out. Mm. And they're always trying to poke holes in everything you say, all day, every day. You're fighting um, many judges. You know, I have respect for the judicial system, but a lot of, a lot of judges, especially in the state court system, become judges for the pension. And they aren't doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. And they don't like lawyers that come from the big fancy law firms and they like to teach them a lesson. So they don't necessarily follow the law. They just want to throw around their weight and it's frustrating. And so you're fighting those judges. There are many other judges who are great, but you're fighting those judges. You're fighting your partners because everybody thinks they should have a bigger piece of the pie um and um that's a constant struggle and battle and then you're also oddly enough fighting your clients because they always think that um they should get all of your attention they should get all of your time their work should be prioritized above all over all other cases and most of the people i represented were very high-end business profile people who felt that they were smarter than anyone else including you so they wanted to tell you how to try their case um even though you're you're the professional. They aren't in this realm, but you're constantly battling them. And um, if you won, of course we won because we should have won. If you lost, it's your fault. So um, very, I found it, you know, there's an old adage for litigators that you only have so many cases in you. And I think that is the truth. So I was so grateful to flip over into um, doing more genteel, proactive in-house counsel work where you're Everyone's striving to do commerce and to do something that's, that's, in their minds, at least valuable, and they all are working towards a common goal. They aren't fighting each other.
1: Well, Michael, what you just described, I imagine you and others that have experienced what you've experienced for that 15-year period, uh, you probably have a, a, a bit of P- PTSD,
0: a little bit it's funny you say that because sometimes when i've had to g- walk into law firms again and i see these poor young associates sitting at their desk you know eating their salads and you know hunched over um i think oh, i'm so glad i'm out of that i'm grateful for it and i worked for a fantastic um couple of firms actually really great firms um so i have no uh, ill will or ill feelings towards that but yes i'm really grateful to have been out of that and but and what you learn about law school is um those skills can follow you in anything you do. And I know that sounds cliche, but it's absolutely true. I can't tell you um, how important that's been and everything I've done ever since, including starting the business in Belize.
1: Yeah, we're gonna get to that in a couple minutes. Uh, law school, which year was the hardest? And tell, and, and walk me through, uh, did you take the Illinois bar? Yes, yes. And walk, walk me through uh, the, the bar experience.
0: Okay, well, as far as law school itself, that's always a fun experience. Of course, I think for almost anybody, the first year is the most intimidating because you have no idea what to expect. And it's not, not like undergrad. It's you know, quite a different animal. Um, this whole Socratic method thing and almost all large survey courses um, is quite intimidating. Um, and one of the things I learned in law school, which was kind of funny and sounds really terrible, but I was very intimidated when I got to law school because um so many people seemed to know what they were doing and they'd raise their hand in class all the time and they'd have articulate answers. And I was, you know, sitting in the back of the class, you know, praying not to be called upon. And they posted the grades at the first um first semester before I came home for Christmas. And I refused to look at them because my philosophy was. I'm sure I bombed and I don't want to ruin my holiday. I'll look at it when I get back. And I got back and lo and behold, I got straight A's, uh, wow. really high, really high scores. And then what I noticed after that, all those people that are raising their hands, you never heard from again. They were the ones that got the, the D's and the F's, in you know, the first semester. So Ironically,
1: they may have been actors.
0: Maybe, could be, could be, but it was just kind of shift. You all of a sudden could tell, not the, you know, the grades were anonymous but you could feel the shift of the people that did well first semester and the people that didn't do well. Um, so that was great. So once, that, once I passed that threshold, it was, you know, Katie bar the door, everything was, was fun and great. And I was involved in all sorts of things and felt very confident. Um, and then as far as the bar exam, that was uh, also a very interesting undertaking. I don't know what it is like today because this was a long time ago, but they had this amazing bar review program where uh, the law firm would pay for all the new associates to go off, um, you'd, you'd work from like eight in the morning until noon, and then you'd have lunch. And then at one o'clock you would go to this uh, other locale with every other law stu- every other um, budding lawyer in the Chicago land area. And you'd listen to these courses that this one guy particularly would run. And um, you'd be there for five, six hours a day, five days a week. And mm-hmm. he would walk through each of the courses, and walk through a bunch of questions, and he would say things like, you will see this question on the Illinois bar. You will see this question. Take note. And then you do practice exams and all that. And by golly, when I walked into that bar, it's like, I, I literally thought, is there some collusion between this course and the folks that put together the exam? Because it was exactly, it was almost as if we had a cheat sheet. It was crazy. So yeah. I felt pretty confident going into the into the bar exam. It was a great, it was a great thing. I'm sure there wasn't collusion, but it sure felt like it, but it was a, an amazing training course.
1: I would hope there was no collusion there. Yeah.
0: I would hope not, but it is Illinois after all.
1: <laughs> I'm glad I you hope. said it. I'm glad you yeah. said it. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you, how were you notified that you passed?
0: Letter by letter. And um, so the letters came out of Springfield, Illinois, the state Capitol. And so my colleagues who were, who lived in, towns around Springfield were getting their notices and those of us in Chicago had not. And so, you know, you started hearing, I passed, I passed, I passed. And I kept looking at my mailbox and um, it was agony for a couple of days, but then, oh, finally, and then you get this envelope and there was a story going around, going around that if it was, it was either whether it was a thin envelope, it was bad news or if it was a thick envelope, it was bad news. And I was, as I was looking at this very thin envelope, I could not remember for the life of me, which was which. So, you know, that, what seemed like two hours it took me to open the envelope It's like, what does this mean? Is this so, but luckily the thin envelope is good news.
1: There's more irony there in that uh, you had to remember a lot of things to pass the bar and you couldn't remember what thin meant. <laughs> That's
0: right. And oh. then it was the first and last time I ever had a migraine headache. I opened that um, envelope and got hit with the worst headache of my entire life. I had to go lay down for the rest of the day. Oh, wow. It was just like all the pressure just going.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good that that was your last one.
0: That's right. That's right. All right, so
1: let's talk about Belize. Uh, Andrew told me that you uh, had some things you could share with me about Belize. Uh, you and I chatted, so I have a, a, a better feel for it, but the listening audience uh, should should hear this. I was really excited to talk to you about Belize because my wife and I have been there, as I mentioned earlier, a few times. And we absolutely adored this tourist because – I think the, the folks of Belize, especially of that peninsula, um, Ambergus Key, they, that's how they make money. Tourism is very, very good for them. And you said uh, in our previous conversation, around the two-month mark, if you stay there two months or longer, it starts to turn a little bit. Can you describe that, that turn?
0: Absolutely. And I love the people of Belize, so let me, let me preface it by that. But you're, you hit it spot on. It is all about tourism, so you want to talk about acting. Um, most of, most of the folks from, in Belize who are involved in the tourism industry are acting and they're acting as if they're the most gracious and wonderful and welcoming people in the entire world. And that's what tourists take away from it. And you see that all the time in reviews and the like, it's like, oh, they're the most inviting and engaging and wonderful human beings on the face of the planet. Most of them, the second you turn around and you stop and they stop smiling, smiling and you're off when they wave goodbye, they're looking at how much tip you gave them and they're cursing you and, um, oh, bad. And uh, talking about how much they wish they were doing something different and, you know, pulling out the rum and um, it's a whole it's a whole different thing. So that's kind of one of the deep, dark secrets. That's probably not different than most tourism industries elsewhere, but it's the one I'm most familiar with, honestly.
1: Yeah, uh, they they, they, they're good actors.
0: I'll give them that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think I ran into a bad actor. <laughs> they're very very good at it once in a great while you'll find one that's just in the wrong profession they don't last very long yeah, uh, yeah. we just who just can't take dealing with you know the ugly americans because that's part of it too i mean in their defense we're we're as uh as as uh most a of us
1: most of us are for sure
0: yeah we want everything you know, very high demand and and as you know being there one of the charms of Belize is it's very rough and tumble it is not white sands, uh, white tablecloths, um, gentlemen with, with uh, white jacket serving you my tais on a tray out on the beach. It's, it's, uh, a Jimmy Buffett, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker kind of rugged place. And so if you come there, like some people do with the expectation that they're going to be in, I don't know, St. Thomas or something like that, um, they can be very upset, um, uh, that they're not getting the experience they anticipated and, um, and they'll take it out on the Belizeans that they're not getting the, the white the white collar treatment or the, the white glove treatment, excuse me. Yeah, it's
1: funny. Uh, my wife and I really enjoyed it because it, it wasn't white glove. Uh, you, we would leave where we were staying and nobody said, hey, be careful. You have to go out with large groups or you should never leave unless you're uh, on a guided tour by somebody who works for this resort. Uh, we just got went into town in San Pedro and just kind of mixed it up with the local yeah. and, and they were fantastic. Yeah, and part of it is
0: what you said at the very outset, which is uh, they're smart enough to know their bread and butter is tourism. And if they start hassling the tourists or robbing the tourists or anything of that nature, it, the golden goose goes away. So they're very deferential to tourists when it comes to that. It's very rare when you hear about a tourist getting um, in any type of scuffle with anyone down there.
1: All right. So, Michael, how's a kid from South Dakota, Northwestern grad? Did you go to law school at Northwestern as well?
0: No, I went to UCLA,
1: actually. Oh, wow. Oh, hold on. And I, you told me that in the first conversation. So I apologize for forgetting that. What what's what's a Midwest kid who's been living that vibe for roughly 22 years and then going out to Southern California that that had to be a massive shift for you? It was a
0: huge shift. It went from, you know, Northwestern was very conservative It went from um, having a guy who used to run literally up Sheridan Road every day with a Reagan, Ronald Reagan flag and i'm not kidding yeah. um so i went from that environment to walk in into ucla where there was 10 cities protesting apartheid uh completely flip-flop of an environment but there were kind of two factors that, that led, well three factors that led me there one was um financial aid was phenomenal for me uh thanks thanks to the ucla board of regents so that was a big factor i was paying for my own law school. Um, Second is one of the areas of law I did want to really pursue in my earlier days and, and did a lot of litigation in this regard is communications law. So like FCC type regulatory based um, litigation. And at that time, I don't think it is anymore, but UCLA had, was the number one school in the country for communications law. And uh, the third factor was my favorite, which is I was going to go to Northwestern Law. Northwestern uh, Law School is downtown Chicago as opposed to Northwestern Undergrad, which is in a suburb north called Evanston. Um, And so I took the train from uh, the L from Evanston to Northwestern to actually meet with some of the folks at uh, Northwestern Law School to see if I wanted to go there. I went down on an April day and there was this stuff coming from the sky that they called like sleet, but there were basically BBs smack in my face as I was walking to the Northwestern campus. I was soaking wet. I had, you know, basically it looked like I had chicken pox because I got slammed by this sleet. I walked downstairs in the in the basement where there was a men's room and I literally said out loud uh, in the mirror, son, if you're going to go through three years of hell, you're going to do it in California. <laughs> I'm not gonna here. And that was really the deciding factor.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, Chicago land is known for its, its, uh, weather. That's, I've never experienced what you just described.
0: It was unbelievable. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes wish I would have gone to Northwestern because it definitely, um, it definitely is a cool place and has a great reputation, but I met so many amazing people and I, at UCLA I was lucky enough to get, um, they, they offered these externships where you could spend a semester actually working and getting credit at the federal communications commission. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to get a job with just this great guy named Dennis Patrick, who wound up being the chairman of the FCC. Um, and so I worked in his office and he and I became fast friends and it was just a fantastic experience. So I'm really, I'm really uh, gratified. I did that, but
1: yeah. Well, what's interesting, you you stopped, uh, doing drama actively halfway through undergrad. And then you end up in a place where, uh, the many consider the acting Mecca in the world. uh, That's right.
0: did, did Did
1: the drama thing start to rise in you again?
0: Not really, not really, but it was, it was fun you know, seeing the stars walking down the street once in a while, because UCLA is in Westwood, if you're familiar with the LA region, and there's actually a lot of celebrities that wander around Westwood. So it was kind of fun to go, there's Dustin Hoffman, where's, you know, so-and-so, it was fun. But
1: gotcha. no, I, I, never, I never got the
0: bug to go back to it. Yeah. All right, so I, I had this wonderful
1: setup for my question about Belize, but uh, I'll, I'll abbreviate it. How did you end up uh, even going to Belize and then much less starting a business there?
0: sure that's a that's a fun story um it's not that far far in the history banks actually so about 2015 2016 um i met my second wife uh fell mad, we fell madly in love with each other we actually knew each other at northwestern oddly enough and uh hadn't talked since but stumbled on stumbled upon each other again um the first date we had basically was Uh, she said, hi, I remember me. I'm Bonnie. I hate my job and I hate my life. And that was kind of the the first thing out of her mouth. Um, she was completely burned out as an executive with an advertising agency that she'd been doing since she left college. I was completely burned out doing, um, in-house counsel work for a, a really high end company. And, um, my mentor, my boss, um, was dying of cancer and I didn't really see a path forward at that company once he left i didn't really want to be there so we were both kind of in a state of unhappiness with where our careers were at that particular time um layer on top of that that we just found each other and it was clear very quickly we're very cynical and practical people it was clear very quickly that we'd found something really special and we weren't any spring chicks so we were having these conversations like well gosh it'd be nice to find a way to spend more time with each other. Now that we found each other after all these years, you know, we're getting up at five and going to the gym and then schlepping to the office and collapsing on the couch at eight o'clock. Doesn't sound like what we want to do. Now that we found each other. Um, and as we're having these conversations, my best buddy from college calls up out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in about five years, probably. And he said, guess what? And I said, what? He said, I'm in Belize. I've moved to Belize. I've, I've sold everything. And he was a very successful businessman in California. Um, and he said, I opened up a jet ski and parasail business in Belize. And he said, I will tell you, Michael, we've always talked about doing something together. But the thing about Belize is they're about 15 years behind all the other Caribbean islands. So just pick something that's working at another Caribbean island and bring it to Belize and you'll make money. And so that was kind of the impetus. We kind of viewed it as a, a sign from the heavens and um, went, went down, started doing due diligence, quit our jobs. And uh, once we got the business going and off we went. And how long have you been doing it? We started in 2016.
1: 2016. So mm-hmm. your your kids were at, were out of the house. They'd been out of the house for a while, and so yep. it's really you and your wife. Uh, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would, I would never do it if I had kids that were. Yeah. Frankly, if the kids had stayed in Chicago land, I wouldn't have done it. I would want to be part of their lives. But once in the Pacific Northwest and was in Northern California, so I see them as often when I'm in Belize as when I'm not. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what, what's the business? Um, well, so here's the special point. The So as you know, if you go to Ambergris Key, it's mostly based on water sports. But a lot of people that go to Ambergris Key and only Ambergris Key will do a day trip to the mainland to go see the Mayan ruins or do cave tubing or zip lining or go to what's called the ATM cave or horseback riding. And it's a great experience. It's a whole different. I always describe it as a different country because, as you know, you know, Ambergus Key is in the flats and the beautiful water and on the barrier reef. Um Whereas the mainland is rainforest and rivers and uh, so an entirely different environment. So I always encourage people to do that. So I did some due diligence when I first got there as far as what businesses were needed there. And I essentially went to the major resorts in Ambergris and asked the same question, which is what's missing, essentially. And a pattern started to develop when I talked to them. And the pattern was everybody loves those day trips to the mainland. They come back and they complain about the quality of the tour vehicle. It's rusted mm. out. There's no a condition. There's bad shocks. The guide is looking over his shoulder, yelling at us about the sights. We can't see anything. So we imported super stretch SUV limousines, and we do mm. mainland tours in 20 passenger um, Ford expedition or Ford excursion um, limousines, and it's done fantastic. We were really lucky. We, we hit a, a big speed bump with COVID, as you can imagine. Our business was just starting to, to hum. When covid hit and uh literally the country shut down so that was a bit of an impediment but we bounced back and, and you, the, the business is doing fine again right yeah and what's what's interesting about it is so if you would have talked to me four years ago before covid i would have i would have been preaching the fact that anybody that tries to run a business as an absentee owner um in belize is um, out of their minds and is going to lose their shirts you can't be it cannot be done um and lo and behold one one of the things COVID taught me um just out of necessity was if you find the right people and you have the kind of the right process in place you can make it work um so um we go down there you know six months out of the year four months out of the year whatever we desire two months out of the year it's up to us whenever we go when we go and we come back when we want to come back but we don't have to be there any longer which is a really freeing thing so it kind of runs itself i do a little bit of work on it in the mornings and um and a little bit of work at night and once in a while I'll answer a question during the day but for the most part it's a well-oiled machine and I just have the best um general manager to thank for that
1: how did you find the gm
0: um when i first got to the country i was introduced to actually my my buddy from college um he had a, an employee who's this is belize he had an employee whose cousin was in the tourism business on the mainland so i met with him and started talking with him and um, told him what I was looking for. And he helped introduce me to drivers and guides. And uh, thanks to him, uh, I found the right people. It took a while. I mean, we went through you know a, a range of people and people didn't show up and things like that. But, um, but actually, the guy that's my general manager now, who I attribute for keeping my business alive during COVID, uh, was one of the first people I actually interviewed for a job when I got yeah. there. Yeah, it's fun when you uh, get lucky enough to run
1: into folks like that. Yeah. And
0: I will tell you, I'm a, as I mentioned before, I'm a pretty cynical guy and I'm kind of cynical about Belize to be honest. Um, but then there are these gems like this guy, Jason, who change your life and, you know, will be, you know, he's almost like a, a son figure to me and I'm almost like a father figure, figure to him. And um, I trust him with my life and my finances. And he's, he's always proven himself to be trustworthy. So it's just, it's great. And he cares yeah. about the business greatly. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Uh, so, you're you so, somewhat cynical about Belize. I, I imagine you have stories and you obviously leave names out because you've done a nice job of leaving names out of most of this conversation uh, or names of companies as well. Um, a couple of stories that a tourist might say, really? But understanding that there's a line between the the first 30 days or first 60 days and then uh, time after.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a terrible thing to say, but, um, there is, there is a good level of corruption in Belize, as you might imagine. And uh, there's, there's two ways to handle that. You either stick by your principles and, um, and pack up and go back to the United States, or you learn to play the game. And I hate to say that, but that's, that's the truth. And I learned that um, very, very poignantly when uh, we brought the limos into Belize and I couldn't get them out of customs because mm-hmm. they wanted to charge me twice the value of each vehicle for uh, for duty and i they sat there i know they sat there and sat there and then finally someone said dude you just have to pay somebody and i said really and said you just have to pay somebody and much to my chagrin you know i i did that and lo and behold they were released so um like it or not that's how things are done that's how you get licenses that's how you get approvals and um that, that's distasteful to me um, and it's interesting because when I mentioned that to my Belizean friends, they go, well, the United States is corrupt too. And I said, I'm sure we've got our level of corruption. And you hear the stories and you know the, the newspaper ads. I said, but I will tell you, I'm, I'm not a, a spring chicken. I've never once had to pay for any type of license or anything of that nature in order to do business. I've, it's always been on the up and up and always legit. So that's that's unfortunate. And part of it, they always say it's a it's a function of it being just such a desperately poor country. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, if, if we grew up in Belize, um, we might have fallen into that way of,
0: uh, of being as well. So, yeah. Yeah, but, I can't really can't really criticize them. I mean, I have, I have one friend who said uh, they call me Mr. Mike's down there. That, I don't know what the S is all about, but it's Mr. Mike's. And uh, we were driving around on the golf cart one day and he said, Mr. Mikes, so I'm going to be mayor of this town someday. And I said, well, I bet you will be. And he said, yep. He said, I know, I'm only going to be a little corrupt because I want to do things right.
1: He's, he's <laughs> going to run on. I'm only going to be a little corrupt. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's his campaign that's slogan. slogan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So uh, you have a Facebook following, you were telling me?
0: I think about your beliefs. Oh yeah. I, yeah, yes, I do something called adventures in Belize, which are just my anecdotal stories of craziness in Belize. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that most people don't believe are, is true. Um, unless they've actually been there or lived there for some time. I mean, yeah. one of, one of my favorite examples is, um, St. Patrick's day on Ambergris key there at that time. It's gone now, but there was actually an Irish pub, um, on mm-hmm. key so of course you're going to go to the irish pub on st patrick's day so i go to the irish pub and of course they're doing the traditional irish um dish of chicken pot pie um i don't know why yeah. but that's not traditional so i order the, the special the chicken pot pie and um out comes this pot pie and it's clearly a beef so i call the waitress over and i said yeah that's fine it happens I so go I'm sorry, I ordered chicken. This is beef. And she goes, Oh, it's chi- yeah, chicken pot pies are special. It's delicious. I said, Yes, that's why I ordered it. But this is beef. Well, why do you have beef if you order chicken? And I said, um, I didn't, I, I don't know. I ordered chicken though. She goes, Oh, yeah, the chicken's delicious. You should have the chicken pot pie. I said, Yes. So if you could take this and I want the chicken pot pie, that's a good choice, sir. You should have chosen that in the first place. Um, and I said, Okay. And, and then she started to take it away. And I said, can I ask you a question? I don't remember even seeing beef pot pie on the menu. She goes, oh, yeah, it's not in the menu. There's no beef pot pie. And I went, OK, bring me the chicken pot pie. So it, stories like that are, are, are abundant. Um, did another, you get chicken pot pie? Depends oh, I ultimately did. Yes, I did. Yes. Uh, similar story. One, day, one time I was going to the airport and I was, I can't remember if I was, I must have been late. I had to be leaving. I was leaving to come back to the States and I had two bags. And I saw the guy tagging my bags and he put two baggage tags on one bag and zero on the second bag. And so I said, excuse me, you put two tags on one bag. You shouldn't have done that. He goes, well, no, sir, you have two, you have two baggage claims. And I said, I do, but you put them on this. And I, I swear to God, we went around for a half an hour with me trying to explain how he put two baggage to and then He blamed me for it. He basically said, well, why would you do that, sir? So, very very common story um another example uh one day i was going on the water taxi to belize city and they give you a of course a paper ticket to go on the water taxi i had walked in i was the only one i was one of the last guys on and um as i was standing lined up to get on the water taxi a big gust of wind came in blew my ticket out of my hand and it landed in the in the ocean right over the dock and so I called one of the guys over he goes oh, I got a problem my my tickets right there you would have thought I said the boat engine just fell off and because they had no concept of how to handle the situation and I said well she, this this woman inside knows I just bought the ticket and she knows me he goes yes sir And I said and you see my ticket is right there you can actually see it it's physically right there yes sir but you must have a ticket to get on board I said I know my ticket's right there and we went around and round around and, around and I didn't think I was going to actually get on, and it wasn't there were being jerks about it. They just couldn't process how this because they had to have a ticket to, in their hand. They just had to.
1: It, it sounds like a uh, Belizean Abbott and
0: Costello kind of environment. It is very much who's on first. That conversation <laughs> happens all the time. Yeah, all the time.
1: But are you where are you now? Are you
0: in Chicago? I am. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, w- what's the best time of year to go to Belize? Uh, optimal time in my view is like January through March. Gotcha. Because it's really cold in Chicago. Yes. And the weather is usually idyllic in Belize. It's not too hot, not too, not too cold. I mean, right now, this is the rainy season in Belize. I would never recommend anyone going there September through end of November. Starts to turn around in December and then it starts to get brutally hot. Like April, May, June, um, July is really terribly hot.
1: Yeah. Terribly muggy. Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, Hey, tell me, uh, well, actually I'm going to ask you a question I haven't asked in a while. Uh, it used to be a standard and I went away with it, not intentionally just kind of faded, but you seem like a guy who is going to give a, a really good set of answers here. So imagine you are a talk show host. It could be a daytime show, nighttime show, late night, whatever. Uh, you're only doing it once. Uh, you can, you're going to have three or four guests, They can be alive or dead. They can be famous or not famous. They can be family members, uh, a friend you haven't talked to in in a while. Uh, You can go for pure fun. You can go for humor. You can go for thought-provoking. It can be whatever you want. It can be a mix of all those things. Uh, It can be whatever you want it to be. One male, one female, one musical act, so a soloist or a group. And then if you uh, are... Enjoy comedians could be stand-up or uh, maybe a more broad definition of comedian. Uh, who would
0: your comedian be? Okay, my comedian would be Stan Laurel for sure. There was something something special about Laurel and Hardy when I was growing up. At 10:30 every single Friday night, uh, uh, in Sioux ball South Dakota, they'd play reruns of Laurel and Hardy shorts, and that was a tradition for my father and I. We would go get pizza. And he'd let me stay up late and we'd watch Laurel and Hardy. And I thought they were the funniest guys in the world. So, and I also then, as it, as I got as late, I uh, grew up and learned a little bit more about their act, I realized what an interesting relationship they had and what an interesting business person Stan Laurel was. So that'd be my mm-hmm. comedian for sure. All right. Love it. How about music? Music. Um, music would be Mozart. Um, okay. Yeah. I would love to really understand the the tragedy and the, and the true story about his genius. Um, and what it was like to live in that, that time of, uh, of our world. And the fact that he was, you know, just a child prodigy is just fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. I don't know a ton about him, so I would definitely want to check, uh, your talk show out. And, and Laurel and Hardy, I think are still funny to a lot of folks, uh, alive
0: today. Oh, absolutely. Have you seen that movie that, uh, that was done about them with, uh, uh, William is it William Riley is that his name I, I haven't seen it it's really if you like Laurel Hardy at all it's really good they captured okay. them quite well yeah
1: all right. I'll check it out all right. uh, your last two are uh, a male and a female
0: male and a female uh, male as maudlin as it sounds would be my father um, okay. because as you know if you lose you know I didn't lose my parents super young but I was in the midst of creating my career and raising children they were young and um I always thought there'd be time when I got older to spend time with him and to pick his brain and to learn about his life. And you know that was next. That was next. Let me just get my kids raised. And that didn't happen. Um, so absolutely. My father, without question. Um, woman, who would I want? I think. Um, and I'm terrible with names, but I think I think maybe Margaret Thatcher would be somebody I'd be very interested in talking to because she really paved the way for female politicians as far as I'm concerned in leadership roles. So I'd love to hear the struggles she went through and the, the ad- adversity she had and the sexism she faced. Um, so I think that'd be my, my female.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to talk to I, I think she would be my answer uh, if you asked me that question. Uh, yeah, in
0: the past when, when I've been asked similar questions, I always say Abraham Lincoln, of course, um, just because I think he's a fascinating, twisted, tormented soul who was just a genius and the only person that could have uh, gotten us through that point in time. He was the right person at the right time. And I don't think we'd be a country if it wasn't for him. So I'd love to interview him as well.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I I don't think there was anybody before him, uh, at least not for decades before him and decades after that could have done what he uh, was able to do. Right. Right. Or, Or able to lead. All right. So let's close, Michael. Tell me about Bonnie and tell me about your kids.
0: I will. Bonnie is the smartest person I've ever met. Um, and we have kind of a funny story. I can't tell too much of it to a PG audience. But when we met in college, we didn't really know each other that well. We lived in the same dorm. But we actually spent one evening together, if you know what I mean, at, at a party. And that was it. I was dating someone, she was dating someone, uh, had a very nice time together and would see each other on campus occasionally. But, um, but that was all there was to it, just kind of a nice little memory. And then she got married and I got married and ne- we never spoke, you know, after college was out uh, at all. And I always anticipated she'd go back to the East coast because she was a big New York snob having grown up in Connecticut and always talked about New York, New York, New York, New York. And I knew she was doing advertising and radio TV film. So I when, on occasionally on occasionally I think about her over the years. I think ah, she's probably you know, doing some type of production in New York or something good for her. And um, then lo and behold, I was on, the dating sites, you know, the dating apps after I got divorced. So four or five years after I got divorced and flipped open one of them and by golly, there she was. And I was just stunned. Um, and it was actually kind of prophetic. I haven't told you the whole story because I know we're running short on time, but um, oh, I, had, like, I had kind of taken a break from, from the whole dating world for a while. I'd, I'd literally, i just broken up with someone I'd been dating for three or four months. And I thought, and this was about March, uh, during that year. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the summer off from dating. It's kind of getting tedious. I just want to enjoy the summer and enjoy my freedom. And in the fall, maybe I'll think about dating again. But for right now, I'm not even interested. I'm shutting off all my dating apps. And, and then one Friday night, I was bored and just thought, oh, I'm just going to see what's out there. And I flipped it on. She was the first person to to uh, show up. And it turns wow. out that she had, yeah, and it turns out she had just started on the site. So kind of the, the um, intersection of that Timing was was crazy, so I reached out to her, and I actually reached out to her on Facebook. I, we weren't friends, but I found her on Facebook, and I said, "Hey, it's Michael. I can't believe you're here in Chicago, and I can't believe you're single. I'd love to see yeah. you, and that kind of thing." Turns out, I find out later that she gets this note, and she's furiously um, corresponding with all her mutual friends on Facebook, saying, "Who is this guy? Am I getting catfished? I, is he <laughs> legit?" <laughs> <laughs> and they were saying, "Yeah, he's he's legit," and um, she couldn't remember our little you know, evening together that was so memorable to me for the life of her still to this day does not. Um, she, she blames, you know, college partying and out, al- you know, alcohol and, and, and the like for it. But it's been kind of a funny story that she doesn't remember that, but we, um, we were both not in the market to ever get married again. We enjoyed it. We both had decent marriages that just for whatever reason, you know, we grew apart, that type of thing. It wasn't anything true. Tremendously traumatic, but we also were very much enjoying our freedom again after all those years of being married. And within two months, it was like, yeah, we got to be together. So it's it's been fantastic. We're still, you know, about eight years into it, and we're still waiting for our our first fight. Um, so we're very very similar. We think quite a bit alike. Uh, my daughter's thirty two. She's a teacher, uh, teaches elementary school out in the Pacific Northwest. She's married to a military guy, so she bounces around a little bit um and she has made me a grandparent which is amazing oh nice congrats yeah a little two-year-old grandson who's just the apple of my eye i just love the kid desperately my son is in northern california and he um he's an interesting and impressive guy he while he was in college out there at saint mary's he stumbled upon a guy who ran a cloud solutions company who was actually allegedly one of the you know inventors of the cloud and had broken up and started his own company and um he was neighbors with someone my son knew. It actually, my son had been doing some tutoring for their high school students. And the the guy that ran the cloud solutions company was complaining to this family, a friend, that um, he needed help. And he thought he should hire an intern. He said, well, you've got you've to hire this kid. He's he's a he's whiz-bang. He's a genius. So he hired my son. So while in college, he, my son ultimately was the chief um, uh, information officer of this cloud solutions company while going to school and actually quit school to do it full time. And, and, um, and I said, well, are you going to go back? He said, well, of course I'm going to go back. And I said, well, you know, there's, there's, there's no shame in not going back. You're doing better than anybody in your age category being a CIO of a major company. I said, you know, if you don't want to go back, you won't be offending me. He said, no, I want that degree. And so lo and behold, he, he held down a really high end job and got his degree and, um, while doing that, he didn't really have the college experience. I would hope my kids to have, but nonetheless, he's done really well. So he excelled at that. And then he wound up buying a bunch of, um, uh, franchises of a coder, um, school and has done super well at that. And he's also the CIO of their corporate offices. So he's just, he's kicking it. He's age 30 and he's, he's doing amazing. How old was he when he became a CIO? 24, 25. Probably. Only in Northern California. Only, Only in Northern. Northern California. Yep, that's right. That's right. I mean, so, there,
1: there are brilliant people in Northern California that uh, seem to have a higher risk tolerance than the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm very proud of both of them uh, for different reasons. I mean, he's he's got that end of it. And my daughter has the more, uh, you know, humanistic side that she's really nailed. And she's a great teacher and loves people and everybody loves her. And he's just more of a, drive, a driven, um, go-getter, corporate guy who you just enjoy sitting down and talking to.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh sounds like you have great relationships with your kids. Uh and sounds like you and Bonnie were made for each other.
0: Uh, yeah. The great thing about my kids too is they unlike a lot of kids their age, and I know this sounds like I'm speaking of an old man, but they've got an incredible work ethic, both of them. They both work way too hard, honestly. I wish they'd work less hard. That's that's kind of a rarity in this day and age, is to find someone in that age category that really is, you know, working the twelve, fourteen hour days because they want to and they want to excel. And um that, that can be good or bad. I'm not saying that there are better people because of that, but it's it's unusual to find that in 30-somethings that work that hard and are that driven.
1: Yeah, and it's it's good to have that experience so you can draw on it and, and go back to it when times maybe get tough down the road. That's right. That's Hopefully, right. hopefully they never do, but uh, they can draw on that. Well, really cool meeting you, Michael. Uh, I, I think you've – well, let, let's end with this. You've toyed with the idea of starting your own po- podcast.
0: That's right. That's the, right. the idea there? Well, I think my adventures in Belize could make a very entertaining and interesting podcast because we only just scratched the tip of the iceberg of the things I can think of as we're sitting here. I have a hundred stories of crazy, um, crazy events of things that that have happened to me in Belize and encounters I've had with the Belizean people and tourists alike. So that's my dream is to turn that into a podcast. My, my wife wants me to write a book on it and turn it into kind of a quasi-fiction. But I think it's, it's more geared towards a podcast uh, serial type of undertaking. Yeah,
1: so uh, you have a, a choice to make between just organic storytelling or uh, a scripted podcast. Which way are you leaning?
0: I'm leaning towards scripted. I think okay. it would be, I think it'd be more conducive to a scripted podcast, honestly. So, OK. Or, you know, maybe I don't know, maybe be a little situation where you could dive into those little vignettes. I don't know if you ever watched ever listened to um, uh, Lindsey Graham on the Wondery um, podcast. No. He's pretty he's pretty good. But he he winds in to both doing kind of narrative and also kind of a dramatic um, reenactments. And it's kind of interesting. It's a good way to do it. He's not a very good actor, but he does a good job of uh, weaving those two concepts together.
1: If you were going to do scripted drama approach, would you
0: play all the characters? I would not. No, I would have to hire a Belizean actor. Have to. Yeah, gotcha. No doubt. No no one could capture that other than a Belizean.
1: I I am uh, by no means an expert on podcasting, but I I do know enough to be dangerous and and maybe answer a few questions along the way for you. So, yeah, I'm always available. No, I'm I'm in. That's great. Cool. Well, Michael, great talking to you. Uh, tell your wife that you had an amazing time and it's maybe the best experience of your life other than when you're with her. Um, <laughs> I will um, tell her that. And just
0: in time for the uh, the Republican debate. So that's perfect. Uh, you watch those? This is like my Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, really? Absolutely. Yep. It's it's popcorn and beer and, you know, uh, nobody can it's, interrupt me type of thing for me.
1: Yeah, I guess it can be seen as entertainment. It's... it's uh... Yeah, I have a tough time watching those things, but maybe I, I could uh, take a different angle into it. and, and Yeah, just uh, think of it as a
0: train wreck. And it's perfect.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Knowing it's going to be a
0: train wreck, it, it's
1: fine. It's, it's all exactly. fine. Exactly. Yeah, who's
0: going who's gonna to do the most outlandish thing is a real question. Yeah, that's a, so it's tonight. It's tonight. It's in uh, two, uh, 12 minutes.
1: Oh, well, I, I will let you uh, get your popcorn ready, uh, but thanks for doing this. <clears throat>
0: If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.